there was a, a mutual respect, recognizing that, hey, you weren't deployed, but you didn't have it easy either. It was tough on those at home. It was tough on those deployed. And so there was this level of mutual respect and being able to maintain the connection and doing it together, both during the deployments as well as what they faced afterwards. What keeps our most important relationships working? On this episode of The Creator Community, we'll hear the stories of couples that have found a way to effectively navigate the challenges of military deployments. There is no one solution, but you'll hear common themes, especially resilience, that help to keep military couples together that we can all learn from. Check out the show. Welcome to The Creator Community. This is a podcast from book publisher, New Degree Press, or NDP, powered by Manuscripts, Inc. I'm your host, John Saunders. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. In this show, we learn about the authors, their journeys, and their books. This year, NDP will cross over 1,700 published authors on six continents and earned a second spot on the Inc. 5000 list. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. If you've ever thought of writing a book but weren't sure where to start or how to finish, visit manuscripts.com to learn more. This is episode six, and today I have with me Brianna Nelson Goff, PhD. She is the author of Bulletproof Vows, Stories of Couples Navigating Military Deployments and Life Battles, which will be out this January 2023, where everybody books online. Brianna is a professor at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. Dr. Nelson Goff's clinical experience and research focuses on primary and secondary traumatic stress symptoms in couples and families. During her 30-year career, Dr. Nelson Goff worked with hundreds of people through her research and clinical work. Each one impacted her work, teaching her about resilience, hope, and healing from trauma, which led to authoring her first book, Bulletproof Vows, Stories of Couples Navigating Military Deployments and Life's Battles. Brianna, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, before we get into the book, I think it's always fascinating for people to hear about your career journey. What led you to this moment of putting a book out there? Brianna, can we start there? <laughs> and what? How did this all come together? I, well, my first answer to that is insanity, I think. But so I started in this field thirty year, over 30 years ago, which is hard to believe. I was a very young master's student at Kansas State. I'm a fourth generation K-Stater. And I, when I started my master's, I knew that I wanted to work with people. And I thought I wanted to work with children. That was my goal. And I started in the family therapy program here at K-State. And within about five months, I was selected for an internship. And we actually started working at the VA in Topeka, Kansas. And that just opened up this whole area of working with trauma and veterans with PTSD. So it was an inpatient PTSD treatment unit. They still have it at the Topeka VA. There's others all over, you know, all over the country. And I, as I heard their stories and worked with these veterans around couple and family issues, they would come in and they would say, my wife has PTSD and my kids have PTSD and what's out there for them. And as a you know very dedicated graduate student, I wanted to find an answer. And so I stumbled upon this term called secondary trauma, and it was really relatively new, as was PTSD at the time. And that just got me interested in learning more and doing research. And so over the last 30 years, that's really what I focused on. Wow. So through your work, through your research, you identified a bit of a gap in sort of resources available to people, and you worked to fill that gap. That uh -huh. is incredible and quite a mission that you're on, which we'll get to in just a minute. But, but, but before we go there, 
how did you discover this author coaching program and, and how did you fit it into your busy schedule? Oh, yeah. So I I had started my book actually two and a half years before I started the, the program, the writer's program. And I would start it as many people do. I would start it and get really excited about it and then get overwhelmed with other things and set it aside because it didn't have to be done. And then six months later, I'd pick it back up and I'd start it again and I'd get really excited. And so that went on for two and a half years. And I was having coffee about a year ago, almost exactly, with a colleague, a, a former colleague, Dr. Sonia Luter. And she had just learned of this program. And so she told me about it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to check it out. And so I kind of checked it out. I you know, checked in with Eric Custer, got, got interviewed and got accepted into the program. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I wasn't even sure if it was a legitimate program or not. But I signed up and I figured if nothing else, I'm going to be farther along in my book journey than I have been in the last two and a half years. So got signed up. And I call it a fire hose experience. And I'm sure you've heard that from other writers as well. It it has just been this amazing, at times, frustrating, I mean, the whole roller coaster of emotions and just an amazing experience. I mean, I can look back now and say, oh, that was amazing. And my husband goes, we're not doing another book, are we? And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Not right now. I'm ready to just get it launched. But just an amazing experience. And I think the whole, the whole I mean, it's a, just a really novel idea just the whole group together, doing the weekly sessions, having tasks, and really taking us through every step along the way has just been, been phenomenal. To what degree was your thesis, your concept, your idea worked out before you arrived in the program? So, oh, great question. So the, the concept was there. So the, the book itself is based on the stories from eight of our couples. So my original, so I, I started in this area 30 years ago. In 2005, we started doing so. Kansas State University is about 10 miles from Fort Riley, Kansas. And Fort Riley, Kansas literally doubled in size and had, it had a lot of soldiers going, deploying from Fort Riley. And so I actually had a student on my team at the time who said, hey, soldiers and military service members are starting to do second deployments be great if we could interview them. And I said, great, let's do it. And so we interviewed 50 couples in 2005. We interviewed, interviewed both the soldiers and their spouses and then did a lot of research with that original data. And then over the years, just kind of wondered where they were. And so in 2015, we started a follow-up. Of course, my goal was to find all 50 of our couples to find out where they were. That was a challenge over those 10 years. But we ended up with data from about a quarter of them. So about 25 of our original 100 participants. Not everybody was together. But from that, we I ended up with data from eight couples that I could weave together their 2005 and 2015 surveys and interviews and tell their stories. And it was from reading those stories that I just felt like the, their stories needed to be told to a broader audience. So my background is doing academic research, academic writing, but I just felt like this needed to be a broader audience. So started the book and the concept was the same, but over time, just what that looked like. And the the part for me was the develop that was the most challenging was the developmental editing part because I, I've always written, I love writing. That's one of my favorite parts of being a professor and being a researcher, but I had to completely relearn how to write and learn in a completely different way that was of interest and would engage a broader audience. So that was a, that was a real challenge was breaking down that, that part that I knew so well. 
And that's a big part of what the workshops are about, right? Sort of unlearning yeah. how we've known how to write for many years and learning exactly. how to write in a story format and really engaging, having structure, but also having the story and details to engage the reader to really draw them in. One of my favorite things I always think about when I read anything is a particular book. So I feel like I'm sitting there in the scene with them, right? And that takes a little bit of a trick to get it there and, and probably not the focus of academic writing, right? All the time. But no, no. These books. <laughs> <laughs> we want to have an impact, but really the, the goal is just getting it accepted. <laughs> and arguably 70-ish percent of the book should be stories, right? And that's hopefully where, where most people tend to land on. And by the way, for our listeners, typically it takes, this program takes about a year from joining the program to getting your book published. So Rihanna took a slightly slower train in getting here, but that's all right. She found her way and, and got it done. And I love the fact that you were, you know, sort of wondering, is this program for real? Is it legit? And as I said in the opening, you know, we're nearing almost 2,000 published authors, which is hard to believe. So that's amazing. I'm, pr I'm proud to be one of them. Before we jump into the book, one more quick question. You've got this gorgeous cover with the couple and the American flag. How did the cover process come together for you? That was part of the process. We had to look at different book covers, kind of find what we liked. So tied to that is the title. And my original title, and this was my, and this was actually in my original notes from three years ago. My original title was going to be "In Love and War," and I was really set on that title. As we were going through when we started the the presale campaign, literally the first day of the presale campaign, I came up with I, I was reading something and I came up with "bulletproof," and I was like, "Oh, bulletproof! That's really powerful." And so I was like, "What could it be? Bulletproof marriage? Bulletproof?" And I came up with "bulletproof vows," and I'm like, "Ooh." I really like that. So I kind of set it aside. I'd been using this one, you know, for three years. I really was set on it. And so then when we got to the point where we were doing the cover, I pulled some photos together. What was really funny was I really liked what I really thought I wanted on the cover was a like a silhouette of a couple with a with a kind of dark or smoky sunset. So it wasn't a romantic look, but it had sort of the serious, but kind of a really pretty background. But again, focus on the couple. And my favorite cover that I found was actually a military dog training handbook that had a silhouette of a soldier with his dog and a sunset in the background, which is really kind of ironic that that was what, but it was like the color and everything. I was like, that's really what I'm trying to engage. And so I sent that to the folks that create the creative team because I am not creative at all, but I was sure that that silhouette was what I was going to go with. And so sent a couple of silhouettes, different colors. And then I just, and then they said, well, you need another, you know, you need another photo. And I was like, oh, but I know what I wanted. I, I know what I want. So I grabbed this other photo of this couple sitting together, a soldier with a, a uniform on. And I, I just threw it in just to have a second photo because I was determined I knew what I was going to have. And so once the creative team pulled those two together, I got it back, got some feedback from my team. And with the title, bulletproof vows. I mean, I liked it, but I still wasn't sure I wanted to change it. My folks that supported me in the pre-sale, when they reviewed it, and especially those that were military connected, it resonated with them. And they said, bulletproof vows tells our story. And so I said, okay, we're going to do bulletproof vows. And then when we got the title, they really had these like really strong negative reactions to the silhouette. They were like, it's too romantic. It looks really cheesy. It's the, it's the couple sitting together. And, and that was it between the, the title, the visual, and then the American flag across the, the, the top of the page. It just all came together. It really turned out beautifully. And uh, the thread in that story that I really appreciate is that you came into this program with sort of this thesis, this book cover idea and a title, and you 
I'll say embraced and trusted the process and dove in and made significant changes of all these based on feedback from your early readers, your beta readers, as we call them. And that's a big part of the process. And people, I will say, people that finish the book and have a good experience, which is most of them, that's the story. They they dive in, they trust the process, they accept there can be change along the way and it's iterative and and embrace that. So Bulletproof Faust, Brianna, what's this book about? So Bulletproof Faust is... It includes love stories, but it's not a romantic book. And so it tells the story, stories of eight couples. Each chapter is a different couple. And it tells the stories of them enduring and how they coped with deployments. They were all in post 9-11 deployments. Several of them were in deployments before. What was really amazing was just that the key was really being able to tell the story from both people's perspectives. So a lot of times we'll hear from the soldiers, you know, we've got movies, we've got, we've got books out there, the soldiers experiences of combat in their interviews. I didn't, we didn't get a lot of details of combat. We got some, but being able to have the interviews from both partners where they were able to talk about before, during, and after the deployment, we could, I I could piece that together. And so it really tells their stories of endurance, their stories of resilience and just how they coped with not only the deployments, but the day-to-day, the things that we all deal with, but we don't have this layer of our responsibility, our duty to the military. And it was just, it's just amazing to hear their stories and just the resilience that they that they endured. And and not only did they endure in their marriages, because these folks were all together still the 10 years later, many of them were in their, you know, 15 to 20 year, a couple of them even more than that, of marriage. But most of them, I think all but one, had been career military. So they had they had endured a, a lot. So I really like how you pulled back the lens here a bit to say, hey, wait a minute, there's two people in this dance. Yeah. Let's get both perspectives because one is, you know, dare I say, home alone during this time, maybe with kids, maybe without, but having to deal with all the responsibilities. At the same time, wondering, is my partner safe and all of these things? So yeah. really appreciate that second side of the story and giving that broader perspective. Uh-huh. So Brianna, who who do you think this book is for? Is this for veterans? Is it for another audience? Who do do you think this book is for? So I wrote it for everyone who served, but I also wrote it for the broader population. So this book is for everyone who has ever served. And that includes the folks that were boots on the ground, but also the boots on the ground at home. And so they they have the, the family members that are serving back home, they're serving as well, even though they are not serving overseas. Like you said, they're worried about, they're constantly thinking about, several of our folks talked about waiting for the, the knock at the door, that something had happened, waiting for the phone call. It's that constant during that time. And they didn't do it just once. They did it multiple times, two, three, four times. And, and so that, that's it it's for them as well. But it's also for all of us. It's all of us who are extended family members, who are friends of veterans, who have friends who are veterans, co-workers, neighbors, all of us who have stood by and watched over the last 20 plus years as they have deployed, as they have served our country, welcomed them home, but didn't really un- don't really understand. I've never served in the military. I don't really understand when when my when my clients when I'm doing this research I don't understand what it's like to deploy or to be someone here who's I don't have a military spouse either but I, it's for all of us to really understand and to have those really difficult conversations about we don't get what you endured but we're here to listen and we're here to support 
And I think that's one of the things that's really important. And we'll probably get into this a little bit more. I was really surprised at the resilience in the couples who were part of our research. And I think, I think in some ways that's unique, but I also think that's also the norm. And, and what media wants us to think about is that's not the norm. And it's the, you know, it's the 1% who are out there. It's those we hear a lot about veteran suicide. We hear a lot about veteran mental health, service member mental health. Those are issues. And those are issues that really need to be understood and addressed. But we also have to recognize there's a lot of resilience, even in those who really are struggling. You know, I think most people listening would think, oh, probably Brianna is a person with a military background. But interestingly, that you don't have one in your family or immediate family, your spouse. So what was your mission here? What really drove you to to get this done? So part of it was we had data. We, we've, we do have one academic publication from our 2015 data, but because we had such a small sample, there's really not a lot. Whereas with the 2005, with and again, now 50 couples, 20 years later, 50 couples seems like a really small number because we're, we're now dealing with several hundred thousand data sets. Um, and, but it was just being able to say, what else could I do with this? And again, as I read the stories, as I read the experiences, as interviews, as separate interviews, I really felt like their stories were important. I'm very passionate about this topic. I love the work that I've done. I've worked with military for over 30 years. I've worked with military through K-State. I've worked with folks at Fort Riley and Fort Leavenworth. It's, it's just a passion of mine. And even though I wasn't in the military, I talk about my background. My Both my grandfathers were in World War II and my dad was in, was in the Air Force during Vietnam. He wasn't stationed overseas. But I've always had an affinity and I'm not really sure where that comes from. Well, certainly seeing your family, I think, is is part of the story and just this passion you've developed for seeing what these folks live through and how they they overcome it in surmountable yes. odds in many cases, right? Because as you alluded to earlier, sometimes these cases end in suicide and really unfortunate right. circumstances. So you've right. seen the positives from this. So, you know, what's the story? Take us into one of these couples' lives and help us see what this is like for them. So I'm going to give you two extremes. And the first extreme is is who I thought you know, again, I'm, I've been a clinician. I've worked with folks with severe PTSD for 30 years. I really expected this to be the norm. And this was an outlier. So one of our couples, the soldier was, had been diagnosed with PTSD and their interview, it was just really, really, really clear The even though what, that was really interesting, they, neither partner. So we interviewed both partners in all the couples separately. We didn't interview them together we interviewed them both separately in both of their, in all of their interviews, both 2005 and 2015, neither of them mentioned PTSD. The only way that we knew that the soldier had PTSD was in his, was from his surveys. And so he had both, he had been diagnosed with both PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury. He had been through treatment. They both, they described their relationship. They were still together after 20 years. They described their relationship like they were in two different relationships completely disconnected, unable to make a good connection, dealing with the veterans, flashbacks, his anger, his isolation, all of the PTSD symptoms, but never mentioned PTSD. And so from that, and I talk about that in the end of their chapter, from that, I mean, this would have been a, a couple, they had tried therapy, it wasn't, it wasn't successful. This would have been a couple that really could have used a good therapist who understood PTSD to help educate them. And, and, and improve things. The majority, so again, that's what I expected the majority to be. What we really found were these resilient couples. 
They'd been through it. They'd been through difficulties. One of our other couples that I just really enjoyed their stories and just their humor in their interviews. The wife told the story about their daughter going across the street and bumming soda off of the neighbors saying, my dad's in Iraq and my mom hates to shop. Could we have some sodas for my brother and I? My brother likes grape, by the way. And the, the wife was just mortified that her kids had gone across the street and were bumming sodas off the neighbors. And But it's a hilarious story. This particular couple and, and other couples, even though they were thousands of miles away, they were able to maintain those connections with each other, each of the couples in different ways. But it was the level of commitment that they both had to serving deployed and at home to the commitment they had to one another. They navigated the difficulties together. And I think that's a really stark difference between this other couple and then one other couple that wasn't to the same degree, but it was, again, there was a disconnect that was there. Everybody else, there was a a mutual respect, recognizing that, hey, you weren't deployed, but you didn't have it easy either. It was tough on those at home. It was tough on those deployed. And so there was this level of mutual respect and being able to maintain the connection and doing it together, both during the deployments as well as what they faced afterwards. These people living through these extraordinary circumstances, right, and having these challenges, what was a key theme you found that created this mutual respect and got them to get on the same page? You know, what did that look like? So what's interesting is you could say, oh, well, they, you know, some of them had been together before. And so we had a couple of people who had who had served through the 90s as well. But that wasn't the majority. So on one hand, you could say, oh, well, they've been together. You know, they've been through things before 9-11. We had a couple of people who were newly married. And in fact, one couple that was a newlywed when he when the soldier deployed, literally weeks later, days later, he was deployed for the first time. And so it wasn't just, oh, they've already been together. I think for some of them, it was their faith, but that wasn't, they didn't all talk about that. For some of them, again, it was their commitment to one another. And regardless of what they went through, we're doing it together. And and that really was the bottom line. It's that commitment and that level. And the other piece I think is the communication. They found different ways to communicate and they all talked about communicating. Of course, it was early on. Now it rec- we recognize how dated that communication form is. You know, some of them, they would instant message. Some of them, you know, would, would have email and that's the only way they could communicate. Others, we have one, we have a couple of couples that talked about writing letters and one particular couple that still has a trunk. That's, that's the title of their chapter, a trunk full of the letters that they both, they wrote each other daily and that's how they maintain their connection. So it, it was, it was figuring out a way to maintain that connection, even though we're thousands of miles apart. Wow. And how long does it take a letter? How long were these letters taking to get through the mail? Weeks, weeks. And so the the letters, they both started the day he got on the plane. And, and so they started those, they started writing and sending them and didn't skip a day, which I find really fascinating. I mean, you know, we hardly keep up with any of that anymore. I can shoot an email, but in that time they didn't have anything else. And so I think it it was several weeks, if not like two or three months after before they before they actually arrived back then. And again, that was really early and things were very, very different. Wow. So old school. I know I was in Africa earlier this year and I remember I sent a postcard to some fam- friends and family and I think it took almost two months to yes. arrive on the next end. I can only imagine what it takes to get to a high-risk military zone. In the, yeah, in the middle of a war. Yeah. Wow. So Bulletproof vows. how do you sort of describe the vows in the book? So... 
The vows are really the vows of their relationship. And they all, all of our couples were army. All of our couples were married. We only had one spouse who had deployed previously. Interestingly enough, that was the couple with PTSD who who were facing PTSD together. And, but the vows, again, I think that's part of what resonates with them. It's those vows that they took when they got married you know, till death do us part and everything else that we face, we we are going to do this together. And it just demonstrates their resilience. And that resilience is something, you know, the, the military has really enjoyed that term resilience for a very long time. And they've tried to figure out, you know, how do we bottle this? How do we make people more resilient? How can we, you know, continue to send folks? They've recognized there are things that we shouldn't do. And that's these, and, and again, this was early on. So they talked about you know, a few months later, they were on their second deployment, whereas now there's a much broader time in between, a, a broader length of time in between deployments. And of course, now we're, we're having very different deployments, but that could change, you know, on a, in, in a day. And so that resilience is something that we see in the, in the pages and, and hear them talk about what they endured. And again, a lot of it is that commitment and those, those early vows that they continue to uphold. Wow. To what degree do you think there's an application of this sort of strategy and thinking around resilience and building upon resilience? It sounds like, sounds like one way they did it was to create more time between the deployments, but is there something we can learn in this sort of the modern world we live in today to create more resilience among our workforce, amongst our families? Do you think there's a lesson there? Definitely. And that's why I think this is relevant. You use the word extraordinary, and I actually use that word quite a bit in the book. They're normal people with extraordinary experiences and they do have extraordinary experiences. They don't see themselves as heroes. They're, they're regular, they're regular people, but what they've experienced to, to be in a deployment, to be in a war zone, live that way for 365 plus minus days and do it multiple times. And we don't have, we, we, we have a hard time understanding to really understand what they've been through and what it takes but it is that stamina and it is that I wrote down the word endurance because it is that stamina. And one of the couples, the, the couple that whose daughter bummed the sodas talked about, he would say to us, it sucks right now, but if we can get through this together, we're going to be better for it. And one of the things I realized I left out was using the term post-traumatic growth because a lot of, a lot of the folks in my book, a lot of the service members and veterans who served don't see what they went through as a traumatic experience. And and a couple of our folks even said that. I don't see it as, you know, because we use that term. They'd say, I don't see it as traumatic. I did what I had to do. We got through it and I'm moving on. And I think that's a mentality that it's hard to grasp. And it again, not a not a light switch that we can turn on and off. Some people do that better than others. And again, I think we we can't predict who's going to be most negatively impacted. And we can't predict Who's going to go through war? Who's going to go through other traumas and actually be better for it? And so that term post-traumatic growth, again, kind of omitted it, but I think it's a piece I can add on here at the end too. What does that look like? So I went to war, I experienced trauma. I didn't even realize it, right? As you said, many folks didn't even realize they went through a traumatic event. And and so for those who might not know, what is traumatic growth and, and what does it look like for yeah. someone to actually go through? Yeah. So traumatic growth, it doesn't have to be. So one of the things people often assume is PTSD is only for veterans. You know, again, we can't fathom. We know everybody goes through really difficult experiences. What soldiers go through, none of us can imagine unless we've really been there. 
but we can call it traumatic because of what they've seen, what they've endured. And, and, but it, they're not the only ones. So we have individuals, many of the spouses had their own traumas. They had pretty, you know, pretty severe abuse. Many of them had been in domestic violence situations, traumatic accidents, car accidents where someone is hurt or killed. All of those are traumatic events. And so we know a lot more over the last 40 years since we've been studying trauma and PTSD. I mean, we've been studying it for a long time, but we had a term finally 20 years ago, 40 years ago, PTSD. And so one of the things that there's actually some some folks who specialize in this whole area of post-traumatic growth, their names are Tedeschi and Calhoun, and they've been studying it for over 30 years. It's a level of like meta-resilience. So we can all be resilient. And the majority of people who go through traumatic events are resilient. They don't experience PTSD. In fact, it's less than 10% of the general population. In post-9-11 service members, it's about one in four, about 23% experience post-traumatic stress at some point. But it doesn't mean they're going to experience post-traumatic stress disorder the rest of their lives. It it can come up at different times. And so anyone can experience post-traumatic stress symptoms. But then once you get through it, And once you get past and realize the event's over, many people go through a period where they're actually better. So it may change their belief system. It may change their outlook on life, but they actually consider themselves better because of what they've been through. And, and again, it's not something we can say, oh, well, let's take this whole group of people and see who's, you know, who experiences growth, who experiences PTSD. It's about the same percentage, about, about 10% experience post-traumatic stress, about 10% experience post-traumatic growth. And then the other 80% in there are pretty resilient, you know, with different ranges of, on a continuum, different ranges of post-traumatic symptoms. For those that experienced the most significant growth in your research, what helped them have that, that growth beyond the trauma? Honestly, I think it was having a supportive spouse. So one of the things that we talk about is social support. That's a factor that we know after the trauma. There's lots of factors that can contribute to the severity of the trauma. But even after enduring, you know, death of colleagues, death, you know, seeing death and destruction every day, being afraid for their life every day, that having that supportive spouse, knowing that person was there, having that connection. And again, it didn't mean they came home and everything was great. It means they came home and they they redeveloped their relationship because everybody changes. When you go to war, everybody changes. Those who are deployed, those who are back home that year long, especially multiple times, you come home and they're, everybody's a different person. They've all changed. They're not the same person they married, but they're committed to this journey together. And I think that's a big part of it was not just their own personal resilience, but the fact that they had a very strong spouse doing what that spouse needed to be doing in both places. And they came back together and were able to continue to build build their journey together. Maybe there was some awareness that they did change. They found a way if, at the end of the day to stick together, which isn't always easy, and particularly given these yeah. extreme circumstances, and found themselves stronger and better on the other side of it. And maybe yeah. maybe there's some growth mindset in here from Carol Dweck's book that is applied. Thank God for these folks that are willing to go do this for our country. The other piece is communication. And I mentioned that earlier, but they were able to maintain the communication during the deployment, but also when they came back. And so particularly with these couples that did really well, with the couple that they had you know, two different experiences, they didn't communicate about it. They didn't know what the other person experienced. With the other six or seven couples, 
they knew what the other person experienced. They didn't necessarily know every single detail, but they stayed in communication and in contact. And that was part of what forged those bonds. So and probably probably some sprinkling of empathy in there as well for each yes. other's circumstances. This does sound like a love story now that you're putting it all together like this. So what about you? This has been so much change for all of these people that you interviewed and talked to and, and their spouses. You know, how has this book changed you? And you know, did you learn anything about yourself along the way? Yes, I did. So I've I've worked in this area for 30 years, and this book shattered my assumptions about combat, about PTSD, about couples. And because I'm also a clinician, my assumptions are if you've been through trauma, you're negatively affected by it. And yes, it can have an impact. It has an impact on everyone, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the worst is is what you're going to be enduring for the rest of your life. There's just so much resilience and growth that people endure and experience. So that's been the biggest thing for me is it's just helped me both as a clinician, as well as a researcher, and just as a person recognizing that resilience in people. Is there a message you might have for people that don't have veterans in their lives and how we might think about these folks? And we often hear circumstances about maybe getting veterans the help that they need and things like this is what would you like to share with listeners who really don't know about this story? That's that's great. My response to that is we all have a veteran. We may not know it, but everyone has someone that served. It doesn't have to be post 9-11. It may be a parent or a grandparent. And of course, we're losing, you know, the World War II are almost and now Vietnam are are, you know getting up in years and and we're losing them multiple a day. But everyone has someone, knows someone who has served. It may be a coworker. And I think it's really just, you know, they don't like they don't like to be treated like heroes. They don't necessarily want to be told thank you for your service because that's kind of become, you know, just a negative comment, even though it's often meant well. You know, I think it's just developing those connections, developing those friendships providing ways of support. And, you know, one of the things I say in the book is, especially if you know a couple that's like our Liam and Lindsay, that really is disconnected, that are really struggling with PTSD, help them make the connections, help them get the help that they need and and support them in that way. You know, it's not about pushing them. There is help out there. There are good people. You have to sort through the weeds sometimes. And I don't mean that negatively about the mental health because I'm a mental health provider as well, but just they have to find the right fit. And sometimes it takes work to do that. And a lot of them aren't willing to do that. So work with them and, and support them in that way. If in your life, veterans do exist and you see this disconnect happening to some degree, find a way to maybe help them. Is there a website or resource you might send them to to start? So I I do list several in the book. The National Center for PTSD is out of the the VA Center, National Veterans Affairs. And I would have them locally, you know, I would have them talk to their friends and say, you know, nobody likes to talk about who's your therapist. You know, it's not something that we sit around over coffee and say, oh, what'd your, what'd your therapist say? Some people do, but it's, it's being able to say, okay, who's, who's local. There are, there's the national suicide prevention hotline. There's the national domestic violence hotline. And especially for those really intense, immediate crises, get them connected immediately. Don't, don't wait till tomorrow. And I think that's, that's really important. So. Wow. Really appreciate you sharing those resources for our listeners out there. You know, so many times as we go through writing a book, there's positives that come up where we didn't even think about or imagine we're out there. What, what was an unexpected positive for you or surprise along the way in, in writing the book? Uh, I, <laughs> I think getting it done. 
I think that's probably the biggest positive. Congratulations. um, Congratulations. Yes, thank you. I I think there's probably, I I have some book, I'm, you know, planning the book launches and a couple of speaking events. And I just feel like now that the book is over, being able to connect it to people, really excited about that. Honestly, it is kind of that fire hose and, and it just keeps coming. Like the minute we, you know, we got a few breaks in there. But it was like the minute, you know, the minute you think you're done, oh, here, we're on to, to the next phase because there is a time. And so really just being able to get back to life as normal, whatever that looks like, but being able to just celebrate it and and stop and take some time to do that. So Bulletproof Vows, Brianna, what is the key message you hope readers take away from the book? I'd say the key message is really that PTSD is not the only outcome from war. And that there's just an amazing amount of resilience. And these these folks are out there. They're your neighbors. They're your coworkers. They're your friends. And I'm hoping that it will help make connections. Amazing. You said you had a number of speaking engagements lined up and some podcasts set up. What's one you're most excited about so far? So one of my biggest supporters was the Kansas Association of Community Mental Health Centers. And their director is having me speak, do a keynote speech, keynote lecture at their fall conference. And so I'm looking forward to that group. And again, kind of, we talked earlier about sort of this thread that we often don't know, you know, thread that starts and then just where it goes. I'm just, I'm excited to see where the thread of this book goes. Amazing. And last but not least, Brianna, if people want to learn more about you and your book, where, where might they go? So it will be coming out on Amazon ebook first, and then in about, well, any, any day now in Amazon and the, the print version will be there as well. Amazing. I did want to share a quick quote, a beautiful quote that you got from an early person to support your book. Uh, for our listeners, Dr. Brianna Goff's depth of insight into the real stories of military family experiences fills a gap in the public's understanding of the real sacrifices endured by both service members and the ones that are closest to them. As a retired military member with a husband still serving and children still adjusting to the impact of our collective service had on all of us, I cannot thank Dr. Goff enough for tackling such a poignantly, poignantly complex and critical conversation. Wow. How did it feel to get that, that quote? That was amazing. All the early praise that I got just was amazing. And they're included on the, on the cover. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, Bulletproof Vows, Stories of Couples Navigating Military Deployments and Life's Battles will be available wherever you buy books online this January 2023. Go out and get your copy. Brianna, great to see you. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story with the creator community. Thanks for having me and spreading the word. Pleasure is all mine. Don't forget to subscribe to the creator community on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. And if you're ready to write your book, visit manuscripts.com to learn how to turn your idea into a book in about one year. I'm your host of the creative community, John Saunders. Keep creating.